Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My guest today is one of the most prominent writers and broadcasters on the British left. He was economics editor on both the BBC's Newsnight, where he won the Orwell Prize in 2007, and Channel 4 News before going freelance in 2016. He writes regularly for the New Statesman as the author of seven books, including his latest, How to Stop Fascism. Paul Mason, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. So in 2012, you published Why It's Kicking Off Everywhere, uh, which is based on reporting around the Arab Spring, the Occupy movement, and so on. And when it came out, you told an interviewer the worst thing would be if we ended up in three years with an acutely polarized social situation in a Western country and the entire elite going, where the heck did this come from? Who is the bloke with a small moustache? You've got to arm yourself <laughs> against these eventualities. Yeah. So how did we, you know, because, because you know, there's a real optimistic sort of progressive, you know, a sort of positive strand to some of your books. Um, how did we get from, you know, which seemed like a really sort of uh, a progressive upheaval in 2011 to a reactionary backlash in five years? It is the question that's been preoccupying me ever since the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement. And I think the, the short answer is that the elite split. It's not a new phenomenon, but it was, it's quite new in our era. We've had since the rise of free market economics, what we call neoliberalism, uh, we've had a, a fairly unified global elite. You know, there's a, a kind of cookie jar called capitalism and you dip your hand into it uh, and you get rewarded according to the risk you take. Globalization works for the rich. And it was really weird around about 2015, to start to see, certainly in America, but also in some other countries, that financial elite split between two projects. One is keep globalization going, double down on austerity, double down on those trade treaties that make it impossible for individual countries to set policy, like TTIP, as it was called, uh, the the, the proposed treaty that Obama and the EU wanted to do. Hmm. We've got the kind of globalist wing, but then we get an emerging wing, and Trump is a great example, Boris Johnson is a great example, Jair Bolsonaro, another example, of people among the rich who don't want to play the globalization game anymore. And it turns out that they also don't want to play the democracy game very much either. Um, And so we get emerging something which is not fascism, it it is right-wing populism with a mass base, Something that very similar to what Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, called the temporary alliance of the elite and the mob. And I think that's what drives American politics to its extremes. I, I was kind of right. I didn't I couldn't imagine it was a Trump like figure, but it was indeed somebody who made the dreams come true of all the kind of authoritarians and white supremacists. And we see such figures emerging, Duterte in the Philippines, almost the first one. Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, and there will be more, unfortunately. Erdogan in Turkey, Orban in Hungary, there will be more because it's very tempting. Once you realise how easy it is to flout the rules of democracy, to create a social alliance of elderly racists and rich people, it's very tempting. Many historians of fascism, as you say in the book, are wary, um, have were throughout the Trump presidency of using the word in a 21st century context, because they argue it's a movement emerged in Europe 100 years ago, particular post-war circumstances. Why do you think that that word is still useful, for certainly for your project in this book, rather than one of the, you know, authoritarian nationalism or, or, or one of the alternatives? Because the phenomenon of fascism you know, either you take the view it, that it was 
It's dead. It's historically over. It could only happen once. It was a product of the First World War and Nietzschean philosophy. Or you take the view that it that it is a, a potentially recurrent phenomenon inside industrial societies. I take the latter view. I think that there are many much less radical historians and writers than me that have accepted that, that, that there can be a 21st century fascist movement, but that's not the mind bender. The thing that made me write this book is the realization that there could be a second fascist era. That's what I'm worried about. And that's what I'm writing in the book, that we are seeing the ingredients of a mass ideological collapse. So belief in free market economics and the free market social system is collapsing. Trump added 10 million voters to his 2016 total, despite going to the polls on the claim that basically blacks and Hispanics were going to steal the election and that actual fascists, you know, in the shape of the Proud Boys and the militia people, were good people. If you're going to argue that fascism is so historically specific that, that we can only describe that thing that was there in the 30s as fascism, actually, you deprive yourself of, of the ability to see it this way, as I do. The first fascism grew from the philosophical and intellectual roots of irrationalism, race science, authoritarian power worship. And this fascism that we're seeing now, which is not primarily Trump, it's not Trump, it's the movements around him. It's like a, a plant regrown from its original rootstock. So this fascism can survive in a networked society. It can survive in a society where globalization, an element of globalization can exist because it's adapted itself to the new phenomena of the 21st century rather than you know, when I was an anti-fascist in the 1980s and 1990s, what we were really dealing with there was a hangover. I call it a tribute band to Nazism. We're no longer dealing with a kind of tribute band to Nazism. We're dealing with a new Nazism. And how to spot fascism checklists um, are very popular o- online, very widely applied. Um, recently, I saw them used Select is often quite selective as well to argue that sort of Boris Johnson's government is basically Nazi. Um, how useful are they these kind of like how yeah. to identify fascism lists the historian robert paxton who to me is is the greatest historian of fascism methodologically points out it's like a sort of um catalog of butterflies that, that you know sort of uh, you, it's useful for for understanding you know at what point is a butterfly a moth as it were but it's not really useful for understanding fascism so i you know definitions are not explanations however political science has put together various checklists. One of the things we should say before we go into this is that for historians, when they put forward a definition of fascism, that's often a research hypothesis. To what extent was General Franco a fascist? Well, here's my checklist, and then I'll I'll compare the reality to that. That's fine in history and sociology. But as activists, we've got to have a kind of living, breathing understanding of what we're dealing with. So for me, I tend to reject, I kind of disparage as well, a lot of the academic definitions that activists are throwing around as if they were of any relevance. I think for me, fascism is always violent. It's, it's a violent mass movement. It has become obsessed with ethnicity rather than nation. You know, the, the fascists of the 20th century were obsessed with violent national rebirth. Modern fascism is, is obsessed with the defense of certain ethnicities, white ethnicity in America, white European Christian ethnicity in Europe, the kind of lighter skinned 
Hispanic originated people of Brazil uh, rather than the native American people of Brazil. And in India, we've got Hindu chauvinism, Hindu nationalism, you know, backed up by a street movement that, that is based on Mussolini's fascists. What we're dealing with here is always violent, always anti-democratic. But for me, where fascism begins and right-wing populism ends, it's kind of a symmetrical use of the word genocide. First of all, all modern fascists believe that white people in Europe are being genocided by migration plus feminism. That's the kind of core myth. If you meet somebody who believes that, you are talking to a fascist. At the same time, they're increasingly prepared to talk about doing genocide to people. If you, if you, if you the, the, a bunch of um, Discord chat logs were leaked by this anti-fascist monitoring group called Unicorn Riot, and in something like 150,000 posts, there were 15,000 that talked about genocide. In the book, I've you know obviously I've researched the way the Nazi brown shirt movement co-opted people. They got them into pubs. They kind of put them in barracks and they kind of gave them a kind of manly lifestyle. But there's no way that any of those young Nazis in Berlin in the 1930s could have known what a genocide looks like. And the scary thing is that all Nazis, all modern fascists, know about it, how to do it. They obsess about it. One of the things I would insist on with, if we're going to define what we're talking about, the dividing line between the sort of right-wing populism and fascism is this obsession with violence, obsession with ethnic self-defense and genocidal ideation. And you describe the kind of people that you might find like, like in the Discord chats, on Gab, um, on certain corners of the internet, you know, who, who obsess over concepts like white genocide, who, you know, I don't think anybody would probably disagree w- with calling them fascists, but they are relatively small in number. How do you get from that lot fairly sort of crankish people um, mm. online. Some of them, obviously, there is some sort of street violence in groups like the Proud Boys, but still fairly small. How do you get from that to, I mean, which is always which is always the fear of suddenly it's a mass movement? Like, w- yeah. what's the connection? That's a very legitimate question. The first thing I would say is that one in five people currently serving jail time for terrorism in the United Kingdom is from the far right. I predict that will soon be you know, it could it could soon be half because a lot of the offences that are in the pipeline are not committal of terrorism. They are planning and propaganda about it. We're, we're seeing ex-forces people, ex-policemen, all kinds of people like that convicted already of that. Although we say they're cranks, you know, uh, Anders Breivik was a crank. He, he shot 77 members of the Norwegian Labour Party dead 10 mm. years ago. So let's not don't play that threat. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. How did the Nazi party go from a relatively small 2.5% in the elections to 17% overnight? We could point to the external conditions, which were you know, mass economic crisis, the collapse of a kind of dream of a great Germany. Also, we could talk about the brutalization of people through warfare. Many of those attributes, if you look at the people who are being charged with serious offences coming out of the Capitol Hill riot, they often fit that bill. Ex-military, people, middle-class people whose lives have collapsed. What allowed that to reach a critical mass in Germany, if you take the example of Germany, in between 1929 and, and 1930, was an almost kind of mass 
quasi-religious conversion. And it was suddenly, you know, the world didn't make sense to them. And something comes along that makes total sense. We're dealing today with the collapse of an ideology, the collapse of the free, the, the internal incoherence of free market ideology. When the government is printing money and spending money to support capitalism, the whole idea that the state should be small and, and, and irrelevant is bonkers. And people can see that. What I argue in the book is that the collapse of neoliberal ideology is leading to a quite widespread degradation of people's trust in and consent for democracy. You see this all throughout Eastern Europe, but you can see it on the doorstep in elections. People were cheering on Boris Johnson when he suspended Parliament, I mean, illegally. So there's that. And then numerous other disorientating thing, things. I mean, climate change. Everybody realises that climate change is going to call for them to change their lifestyle radically, and a lot of people don't want to do it. And what we need to fear, I argue, is that cumulatively, this ideological disorientation looks very like what Germans and Austrians were living through in the late 20s, early 30s. And all it needs is for something to come along that makes total sense to them. Even though it's, uh, one historian put it, Nazism was staggeringly internally coherent, even though it had no relationship to reality. We've had one wave of this in QAnon. QAnon is modelled on Nazi ideology, it's got all the bits of it, you know, people drinking children's blood and all of that stuff. There be the, the government being really the control of a foreign power, all of that stuff. That was all there in Nazism. By going back to study again the events and the sociology of how the Nazis built their movement, I've become more worried about the ideological side and the quasi-religious nature of many of the opposition movements. And are right now you know, not fascist movements, but they are infiltrated. I mean, the, the London lockdown protest not last Saturday was infiltrated by far right and support. Indeed, you know, the, London, the London lockdown protest was full of Trump banners. So they support the right-wing authoritarian populists who are for now good, kind of good enough tool for them to, to build the kind of world they want. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise... Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, what you're trying to do in the book is, cre- is, uh, is have a sort of framework through which to understand sort of fascism then and fascism now, and certainly not to repeat mistakes that were made. You've also got a really deep knowledge of, of Marx, and orthodox Marxists got fascism very wrong in the 20s and 30s. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty complicated, but I suppose what's the kind of, what's the sort of capsule version of, of what, what they missed, what they misunderstood? You know, I, I call myself a Marxist, uh, and I, I, I use a method we call historical materialism to try and understand the world, to understand the relationship between technology, the economy, and society, and ideas. Marxism has been described as a research project rather than a kind of ideology, and I, that's how I think of it. Now, bearing that in mind, we have to say, and I say this in the book, no Marxist predicted fascism, no Marxist 
came up with an adequate theory of what it was when it uh, emerged in Italy in 1920. No Marxist-led party came up with a tactic and strategy to defeat it until it was too late. And they got other things incredibly badly wrong, in, especially in Germany, where, to put it simply, the, the German far left equated liberalism with fascism. And it equated socialism, I social democracy. The massive German Socialist Party was called fascist. If basically Tony Blair and Tommy Robinson are seen as the same thing, you know, then you concentrate your fire on the one with the most power, which is which would be Tony Blair. It's lud- it sounds ludicrous to us now, but that's how the left thought in the 1920s and 30s. And those of us who want to be Marxists have to dig down into why they inherited from Marx a kind of fatalism about the inevitability of their own victory. There was a lot of contingent factors. But the reason for for going back into that is because you, you will find some of those arguments, the ultra-left, class against class, our turn next type of arguments out there on the modern left in Britain, in France, uh, and in, above all in America, where, you know, even now you get not crazy, not crazy at all people, people who write for, say, Jacobin magazine, saying Bush is worse than Trump. Hillary Clinton, you know, I will never vote for the Democrats because Hillary Clinton's just as bad as Trump. This crazy equation of liberalism with the far right has a a 100-year-old history, unfortunately. There's a kind of stamp-collecting aspect to it for people who are leftists. They need to understand this. But in the book, the reason I drag it up out of history is because I see these politically complacent attitudes. I mean, you saw it over Brexit. There's parts of the left that believe that working-class people who don't like migration, didn't like the European Union, want to go back to Fahrenheit and pounds, shillings and pence, are in some way just progressives waiting to break out of their <laughs> their reactionary shell. Well, yeah, you, laugh, you laugh, and I try and make myself laugh about it, but I, I meet people who believe this in the Labour Party a lot. What happened was that they thought that if only there was a left Brexit, we could in some way corral all those kind of old reactionary racists into a kind of progressive movement. I try and talk as much as I can to young people, and the book is in many ways written for kind of an 18-year-old person who might have done their A-levels and thinks, well, what is happening? They've been taught so much about what the Nazis did. You know, they, they killed six million people. They started a world war. Very little is taught about how they came to power. Same with Mussolini. And for me, that's what we've got to get our heads around. Well, you argue for a sort of popular front idea, United Socialist Communists, Progressive Liberals. This was something that was adopted and was sort of pushed by Moscow from 34, I think. And you talk about, you know, it's actually sort of success in, in France. Obviously, it's a big cultural impact elsewhere, like the States. Do you believe that had the left embraced that idea, you know, five years earlier, before Hitler got into power, that would have been enough to stop them. Was it Was it as simple as, as just sort of pulling together in a united front? Well, no. I mean, let's take Germany, because uh, it is the classic example. Between the communists and the socialists, the Workers' Party's got 13 million votes in almost every election in the run-up to Hitler's rise to power. There were some workers who flipped over to the Nazis, but not as many as people think. If they'd have united the two, the communists and socialists, they could have, they would have ended up with 42% of the vote. Now, what's the point of that? The task was to form a progressive government that included people who, who supported middle-class parties. The problem was every middle-class party, in the end, 
had one objective, which was to keep the working class parties out of power. Mm. The united front between the communists and socialists, which both refused, both complacently and pig-headedly refused, was absolutely necessary, but it doesn't solve the problem. What solves the problem is to is if the working class can find a new language, and, and we're talking about a very politicised and left-wing working class, finding a language to appeal to, to a middle class in panic. And they didn't. When they did, in France in 1936, it worked. That's the difference. In, in France, there was a real danger of fascism in 1936. The government was brought down by by kind of semi-armed uprising. The communists initiated an alliance, not just with the Socialist Party, which was bigger than them, but with the Radical Party, which was a kind of left liberal party. And they formed the first Popular Front government. And what happened? Well, first of all, it opened a space for a lot of struggle. So there were mass strikes immediately. It also allowed them to form a mass cultural movement outside the control of any particular party. And your, your listeners will maybe not remember, all politics in the 20th century was incredibly hierarchical. If you were in a party, you know you were loyal to that party and you operated through that party. The Popular Front at base level was committees that no party could control. And it, they looked to me at a 90-odd-year 90, 90 distance as more like a network than a hierarchy. And so I think the Popular Front has a lot to teach us, albeit that it ultimately failed, it fell apart. The problem we get today is that the average left-wing person, first thing they learn about the Popular Front is that it failed. Without the Popular Fronts, or in, both in Spain and France, fascism would have triumphed without a fight in both those countries. Just sort of thinking about this problem of, of, of unity on the left, over the last few years, you've been uh, on the front lines of Labour's civil war, that, in, a, in a sort of, in a, in a way, in a very sort of individual way, in that some of your allies six years ago are people you argue with now, you don't sort of fit into a camp very neatly. So it means you've taken flack from, from, from a lot of sides. What does it take for people on the left to unite against a greater enemy because clearly whatever it is is not there yet given that what's going on the real and present danger we have now is not that tommy robinson is going to take power or or amory waters that you know that's not the the, the danger the danger is everywhere that an alliance of right-wing populists authoritarian conservatives and violent fascist groups such as the one that stormed the, the capital in 6th of January, and then, via the Republican Party, excused the storming of the capital and, and covered up for it, and are now merrily ripping up electoral laws all across the United States to try and prevent a recurrence of um, Biden's victory. That alliance is powerful. It's not fascism, but it is achieving the destruction of democracy much more rapidly than, than we suspected it could. So in the face of that, we need the Popular Front style, far left, social democratic left, green, liberal, progressive nationalists, as in the Ply Cymru and the SNP. We need all of those forces together to stop them. Unless we take power away from these oligarchic, openly racist and racist-minded right-wing governments, you'll never get progress on climate change. It's just that, that, that in itself is the argument for doing it. What are the building blocks? I'm unashamedly kind of... Yeah, I don't mind being unpopular because I was part of the Corbyn movement, but I never bought some of the bureaucratic 
ways in which that operated. I never bought the idea that they didn't want to transform the organizational Labour Party. It was very much a kind of top down, we will be handed freedom by Jeremy once the manifesto is enacted. Well, anybody who studies the history of the working class knows that's not how things happen. And what's being proved now is that unless you do build at the grassroots, and some grassroots uh, activism was done, then you know the, the problem with Corbynism is proved very easy to to knock down within the Labour Party. I always thought this is the, my other difference that you have to be radical on economics, but fairly traditional on things like defence, security, policing, because there's no social coalition for a government that's radical on both. It's pure political realism for me on that. Right. What the left needs to do is decide what its strategy is in Britain. Its left strategy is to sit as a kind of commemoration, your know, reenactment group of Corbynism. Then it's not going to get anywhere. If it wants to build a Labour-led government, it's going to have to take part in a big self-examination over whether we want constitutional change and electoral reform. Because I don't think the Lib Dems and the Greens are going to stand down in places you know, that they could win or, or sort of stand back a bit, as it were, unless Labour is offering them something. So I think that that's what I'd say. There is a very practical thing for, for left-wing people in and outside the Labour Party to do. That is to build a movement that resists the Conservatives and build a political alliance that can put them out of office in 2023-24. What that government then achieves is not down to who drafts the manifesto because I think we've we've had enough of kind of brilliant manifestos that can never be enacted because you can't win the election. It's about who's struggling, who is actually fighting. That's where I think the left always has a, a kind of advantage over kind of classic social democracy. The left lives and breathes the streets and, 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 and the pubs and the clubs and the bars and the football terraces. We do, you know, we have a, a sense of possibility shown both during this summer's Gaza protests and last summer's Black Lives Matter protests, there is incredible potential out there if the left is prepared to tap it. But I'd come back to it. We've got to kind of orient to the future, not recriminate and relitigate what happened under Corbyn. And finally, I learned uh, from the book that we both had a grandparent who was a Polish Jew. And <laughs> I-, I wondered... How important was that was that family history to shaping your politics early on? You know, it was a, yet another thing that I mean, as a as a child, you know, I went to a Catholic school, and I thought everybody would be really kind of quite, you know, quite pleased that I had a Jewish background. But as it turned out, some of them weren't. Um, so, um, especially in a kind of classic rural Irish priest, you know, that, that was not, you know, not a pleasant pleasant experience. My mum, I write about this in the book. My mum always wanted me to not see documentaries about the Holocaust. She had spent her childhood during the war knowing that if you know if the Nazis invaded Britain, she would she would be killed. That was said to her. You know, it was made clear. And but she she wanted to shield me from that. And I think that I've become more and more aware, as I think anybody with any link uh, to to Jewish ethnicity has. I mean, you know, I'm, I was brought up a Christian, and I'm a, 27% of my DNA is Ashkenazi Jewish. I am more aware of the really deep, you know, the blood libel, the the really deep hostility within Western society. And I became more aware of how not bothered, to be honest, parts of the left were about anti-Semitism. You know, I don't buy the whole... Corbyn was an anti-Semite thing. I don't buy the idea that he that 
that Corbynism was you know, systematically bad on that. But I did become aware of just how insensitive people could be to the feeling that is there among you know probably some of your relatives, certainly some of my distant relatives, the ones who survive, of keeping a bag packed. You know, the, the keeping a bag packed under the bed uh, among elderly Jewish people, it's not nothing. It's something we must be aware of. So in the book, I, dis- I finished the book by describing my trip to Maidanek, and I just said, you know, I wonder how, I always wondered how I would feel going to one of these places, finding a bunch of anti-Semitic um, literature on sale at the railway station, while, while all these kind of Israeli travellers are kind of passing by the whole place, you know, oblivious to the eye, the, they're headed for the death camp to go and visit where, they, you know, their, their relatives probably died, but they're not seeing the fact that, you know, the Polish newspapers are full of hook-nosed cartoons. I felt anti-fascist. I mean, it just redoubled my determination that if there is a danger that this could ever happen again, we have to double down to the point of being extremely prudent. We double down on the measures we take to stop it. That plus being surrounded by Tommy Robinson supporters on Whitehall and they chanted into my face, Paul Mason, we've researched you. You're a Marxist. That's a different set of behaviour than, say, the average racist bonehead 10 years ago. When you get people with neck tattoos worried about Karl Marx, you know something is changing. Paul Mason, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for that. How to Stop Fascism is out now, published by Alan Lane. And thanks to you for listening. Take care and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.